What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. And Genevieve Kosky. Given the movies we're covering this week, I feel like each of you should be given a more elaborate introduction that use a cinematic shorthand to establish your characters. But this is an audio medium, and I suspect our listeners have figured out who we are uh, by now. And besides, no one's going to end up dead by the end of this episode, I hope... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. This is the busy season. I already feel like I'm half dead. Yeah. But there's not a real big mystery there. If I if I drop dead, you'll probably have a pretty good idea who who did me in. Or will you? You'll think you do, but then there'll be a, an incredibly twisty, complicated roundabout way where it turns out it was I don't know a canary. I feel like we're we're, we're doing the first draft of a found footage horror film about podcast uh, murders. But as as I said before, I, I'm 100% going to die uh, during. A screening of like the worst piece of crap you've ever seen like just the most disposable <laughs> movie of all time like that's like you know i'll, I'll, I'll during like puss in boots or puss in boots five <laughs> or something i'm gonna like i'm gonna puss just in boots. <laughs> this, this i want to see puss in boots sounds like a, a, a uh. dreadful like body horror film yeah hotel transylvania seven or something like that's what i'm gonna keel over so I'm gonna be, someone's gonna find me at the end of that and i'm gonna apologize in advance to Variety, whoever sent me to the damn thing for not getting the review in on time. So wait, is, is Puss in Boots the new Cronenberg? It's when, it's when you wear the wrong socks. Uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah I've been I calling it Can Puss. Can you die of that? It's, but it isn't. It's not Puss. It's Puss in, Puss in Boots, yeah. An actual theatrical release coming to theaters near soon. All right, well, you know, we're talking about how, how we struggle sometimes, all our struggles here. Uh, but, you know, you know, this this week we didn't have to struggle as much. Sometimes we struggle to find our pairings here in the Next Picture Show. Sometimes we do a little stretching to make some less than obvious connections. And sometimes the pairings pretty much present themselves. On July 17th, 2021, filmmaker Ryan Johnson retweeted a tweet from the at Next on TCM account about the film Last of Sheila, which Johnson described as, quote, Quote, a fantastic 70s whodunit written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins, and pretty much the reason I'm in Greece right now. Uh, the main reason, of course, was that he was shooting Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, a, a film that possibly owes a little bit to Last of Sheila. I like to think we would have made the connection even without Johnson's help. Uh, Jenna, can you tell us more about the two films we'll be discussing? Sure. Released in the summer of 1973, The Last of Sheila had an unusual pedigree. Director Herbert Ross first found success as a Broadway choreographer, but was already several films deep into his long career as a director. His script, however, came from a pair of newcomers, at least to the screenwriting world. Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins were famous for other reasons, but the friends worked together to create an elaborate mystery about a game that gets away from its creator by drawing from the world of Hollywood and some of that world's well-known residents. Decades later, Johnson took some cues from both that film's plot and its satirical impulses. A sequel to his hit 2019 mystery, Knives Out, Glass Onion is set on a private island whose visitors similarly find themselves caught in a real-life mystery nested within a mystery game. So this week, we'll set sail on a perilous journey to the south of France. One will follow next week with a no less deadly trip to the Mediterranean. Please stay with us, assuming we survive. That was what they thought anyway. Until they started playing Sheila's game. Tom thought he could beat the game. Don't touch. Christine played for the prize. Clinton was the master of the game. I call it the Sheila Green Memorial 
gossip. Lee played because she had to. Do you think I'll ever hear the last of Sheila? Tommy, let's just make this movie and put the money in mutual bonds and go home. Philip knew too much about the game. Maybe Clinton broke the grill, nobody else was there. And I'm just puttering my way through the debris of my rusty imagination. It should probably come as no surprise that Stephen Sondheim liked puzzles and games. It feels fitting that a mind that could create works filled with intricately layered lyrics and musical themes would be attracted to self-contained worlds built around creativity, logic, and problem-solving. Mysteries offer some of the same appeal. So while it might seem odd at first that Sondheim's sole screenwriting credit would be a whodunit in the style of Agatha Christie, it's not that great a leap. You can't write something as elaborate as, say, the opening of End of the Woods without a love of creations in which every piece has to fit together perfectly or everything falls apart. Then there's this. The last of Sheila draws from Sondheim's own fondness for creating elaborate scavenger hunts. Treasure hunts, he called them. How elaborate? Here's how Ross described one to the Los Angeles Times in 1973. The treasure hunt took its players to 13 locations all over New York. Quote, We know we were in the right location when we saw a poster of a woman who was running for Congress. In one place, on West 48th Street, we saw the poster and beside it, a woman who invited us upstairs. When we got there, she served us cake and tea. If you put the slices of cake together, the icing spelled out the next clue. Lee Remick's team ate the cake. That's not too far removed from the first round of elaborate game film producer Clinton Green, played by James Coburn, subjects the guests he's carefully selected for a voyage on his private yacht to in The Last of Sheila. Presumably, however, Sondheim wasn't motivated by Clinton's hunger for vengeance. After a short prologue, the film unfolds the year after the hit-and-run death of Clinton's wife, the gossip columnist Sheila Green. To mark the occasion, Clinton invites a collection of six of his Hollywood friends for a cruise. Once aboard, however, they learn they'll have to play a game, one tied to various offenses they've committed and attempted to cover up. But the kicker will be the last night, when the final offense is uncovered, the hit-and-run murderer responsible for Sheila's death. We'll undoubtedly be getting into spoilers in the discussion that follows this. I'll tread lightly here, though the seriously spoiler-averse should consider disembarking at this point and checking out the film. It's fun. Suffice it to say that the game doesn't quite go as Clinton plans, and once it takes a turn, everyone on board becomes a murder suspect. Could it be Tom Parkman, played by Richard Benjamin, a struggling screenwriter who desperately wants Clinton to produce his next film? Maybe it's Alice Wood, Raquel Welch, a movie star in the middle of a bumpy patch who could use a career boost. In fact, everyone aboard wants something from Clinton, and not getting it could be motivation enough for murder. The Last of Sheila is a film of puzzles within puzzles. Beyond the murder at its center, there's a question of who really killed Sheila Green, and beyond that, what secrets belong to which guest. The murder is itself a kind of puzzle that needs unpacking to make sense. Then there's the film's meta qualities. Sondheim and Perkins didn't try to hide they were drawing on real-life figures for the film's characters, even if they were coy most of the time about who they were. They even reportedly tried to get Hollywood agent Sue Mengers to play the part of Christine, a Hollywood agent inspired by Sue Mengers. Diane Cannon took the part instead. It's a whodunit, but also a whodunwhat, and a who is this based on. It's a movie, but it's also kind of a labyrinth. It's also a pretty nasty piece of work. Coburn plays Clinton as a sadist, but each new detail the film reveals makes that sadism seem at least partly justified. It's a mystery without a heroic sleuth akin to Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple. And when sleuths do emerge, well, again, we want to be spoiler light here, but the film's final act and its last plot development are doozies. It's a game in which the worst prevail. And that feels like a final twist that suggests the film's about more than just a game after all. I call it the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. I haven't even described it yet. Uh, no, I couldn't have stopped. No, I dreamed up... Uh, Can't you take a joke? Come here. Pay attention, please. Now, I dreamed up six secrets, one for each of you. Six little pretend pieces of gossip. Now, keep them secret. Gimme, gimme. Can we look at them? It'll help. How do you think these things are? Well, this one's only taken me a month to prepare, he said modestly. <laughs> Smileless. That's what I've always wanted to be. It says you are a snoop. No, 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 
no, no, no. Don't throw it away. Keep them till Saturday and don't show them. Anybody who wants to take a mind gets a kiss. This is a film with a lot of twists to unpack. Did you find yourself getting lost at any point with so many characters and so many uh, twists and turns? Not really. I think the question is designed anticipating that I'm going to say that we're going to say yes. You would say yes, Scott. I think you're the yeah. most easily befuddled. By I know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, befuddled, I got but... surprised that, that Scott came in so hot. Like, no, I got it all. Did you, no, did no, you guess I, it? I felt, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, unlikely events that have to happen uh, uh and there's uh it, there's a lot of layers to the mystery and then of course uh, a lot of real life murders within murders within a game etc but i i thought it was all quite clearly and elegantly done well so i want to take a step back had any of us seen this film before no i've been looking for an excuse to see this movie for just absolute ages so i i jumped on this i was really excited about this pairing because it meant I, it would finally mean I'd have the, an excuse to set everything else aside and watch this movie that I've been hearing about for such a long time. Yeah, first time for me too. I kind of went on its reputation and, and, and Johnson's uh, own swearing by it for his film. Yeah, obviously, same here. So, but I was going to say, if if Scott had seen it before, it would of course make sense that he <laughs> had a easy time with it. But nope, just just good at mysteries, I guess. But I did not know a whole lot about this film, so I was very very curious as a big fan of Ryan Johnson's work and taste to see what it was all about. And yeah, I guess. I didn't have that much trouble following the the mystery because it's very clear in its revelations once they start coming. But I honestly, it took me a while just to get a handle on all the characters mm -hmm. uh, and just like names. And once you add the secrets to the mix and the fact that those secrets are assigned to someone but not the person who has a secret it just like adds this sort of like skewing i guess to to the characters it's like a, two levels to keep track of instead of just one so that element of it i definitely had to like kind of get my bearings and i may have peeked at the wikipedia <laughs> once or twice just to like reorient myself with character names and stuff uh in the first hour or so but once like i said once the revelations start coming which happens like kind of not that deep into the film probably like around the halfway point like it felt more like i was on a ride than trying to like puzzle something out yeah i in the early going i wouldn't say i was lost but i definitely had trouble telling the characters apart particularly the women it, mm -hmm. there was certainly just kind of a sense of you're learning who all of these people are kind of by profession in the introduction. But then when they get all together in the same area and they're just kind of like bantering back and forth, like one edge I would give to Glass Onion in the, the comparison here is like the characters in Glass Onion are such big caricatures. You're not going to confuse them with each other because they're all so distinctive, whereas these are more real people-y and they're all real people in the same industry with with kind of similar outlooks in the very broad sense about their work and, and their ambitions and what they want. And once they all started just hanging out and talking together, I kept losing track of who was who, really until the game started. So I wouldn't say I was lost per se, but I definitely didn't have a crystal clear impression of identities. The place that I got, again, I'm not sure I would say lost, but but pretty confused, is at the point where they start putting the cards on the table. Mm -hmm. I knew I remembered seeing a card that said alcoholic. And yeah. it was very clear who the alcoholic was and that there was a shell game going on. But it did not specifically occur to me that the alcoholic card was missing because we never really get a great shot of the table with, as it were, all of the cards on it. So I kept counting heads and thinking, am I crazy or am I bad at math? Like, it, it seems like everybody's matching up here in an increasingly clear way, but there's an odd card out. And I, I completely psyched myself out, doubting myself and, and distracting myself from like a lot of that late mystery, not realizing that I was, I was seeing one of the twists. I'd anticipated one of the twists. I just managed to convince myself that I was missing something else. So yeah, it was it was honestly a, a big penny drop for me when it finally becomes obvious what happened there. 
Yeah, I had a, a very similar experience to the point that my husband and I, like, we actually paused the movie because we didn't want to talk over it, but we were both confused about the cards <laughs> and the number of cards, and we actually, like, wrote down, like, who's <laughs> like, we had there that's, like, in my notebook, and then we realized that, like, okay, maybe we should just watch and see because this isn't adding up. Yeah, I, I found myself most confused during the first foray into town like what the you know what how this game was going to work and like who when does it end and and all on all that i mean it makes perfect sense and they do explain it pretty well but it doesn't mean i'm not so i, I can necessarily follow it well it was very clever though that first uh scavenger hunt the the, the chanel channel number five thing especially i was i was uh i thought was quite uh was quite inventive Spoiled a little bit by James Coburn's character gloating over it so much. Uh, yeah, there's there's yeah. a kind of delightful sense just throughout the movie of like he is he's laughing at his own jokes. He is laughing at his own cleverness. Mm -hmm. He's so impressed with the game that he's put together, which again is another fun parallel with with Glass Onion. But like I I mean I enjoyed a lot of things about his character that were not immediately evident. I think the setup invites you to imagine a scenario where he is like this twisted genius mastermind who has this like airtight plot that's going to finally force uh, the, the murderer of Sheila to step forward and confess. And instead, it seems like he just kind of got caught up in like, I'm running a really cool LARP here. I get to put on costumes and I get to run around <laughs> and I set up this sweet puzzle. And he's so smug over the uh, Chanel number no. five joke. It's it's kind of delightful. But there is like a kind of a hint of sadism to him right from the beginning. And, and Lee picks up on it. And as we learn later, like obviously has more of a reason to than than anyone else. But like he never seems like seems like he's having fun, but he does not necessarily seem concerned with his guests having fun, you know, So which I think is very important to the the twist of of this film that you think that he is maybe operating on another more nefarious level yeah i want to get into his character a little bit because there is that sadism to it i think he actually hates all everyone there yes. i think he likes mm -hmm. having them under his thumb yep but it, it's unclear you know as we learn more about all these characters it's like well maybe he has the right idea i mean he may be a jerk but but maybe he's these are all bigger jerks in, in some way or or, or another you know it, it's really you know it's really kind of hard for me to figure out how much of this is motivated by sadism and ego and how much is rooted you know is motivated by revenge I think the fact that we lose him earlier than we're expecting is deliberately meant to create and preserve a mystery around that, around mm -hmm. exactly what his plan and what his motives were, because it seems like we are setting up a very specific kind of story and then it's diverted and exactly why and how it was diverted is a whole other layer of mystery. But who exactly he was and what he wants, I think, is meant to be a little bit obscure like a little bit interrupted before we we get the clear answers. I think in another version of the story, the, the story that Clinton imagined, he's the one at the end giving the big speech, laying out all of the the explanation. Like that's the movie I think you're meant to envision and you don't get it. And that's a fun subversion of the genre. Yeah. And one, of course, that <laughs> to jump ahead is is something that uh, another thing that Ryan Johnson takes away from it. It was just like, OK, here, here's the thing we're going to that you think you're watching. And then I'm just going to abruptly end it in the middle of the movie. And it's going to mm -hmm. be about something else. Um, exactly. And I think it's I think it's also kind of I mean, this movie is just delightfully sort of bitchy. I mean, like mm -hmm. like like these these characters um, detest each other and they are detestable. And it's just kind of about like Hollywood types kind of getting one over on each other all the way down the line. I mean, they don't need Clinton around to continue playing that game with each other uh, that, you know, which is, again, it, part of the fun of the movie is, is just, you know, I, there's not even that pretense of like, oh, we're out here to have a great time. That idea is dropped so quickly. You know, once, once the game is introduced, it's not that fun a seeming game i mean you could do a version if we could do a version of uh, we could do a next picture show version of that game where one card would say i hate the movie ghostbusters or something like that and then and then, uh, 
and, and then you know what I mean. But it would be we could a do a version of that game and, make it, and it could be fun. But it would not. I don't think it would end in anybody getting murdered. Uh, I mean, some mm, of the, thing, the, the things know. that are the things. <laughs> well, it, it, I would say the caveat to that is, is that it wouldn't end anybody getting murdered unless we just invited random commenters to the uh, <laughs> uh, onto the onto the yacht. Uh, that it would be a little bit d- dicier. But like. Uh, but everything, all of the all of the cards are quite serious. Uh, it, you know, are, are you know are either are personal or or terrible secrets. I mean, this is a. I mean, so so I think you're immediately fine if you're a guest. You're immediately made un- uncomfortable by it, and and there you're stuck. You're on this yacht, um, and you're you have to kind of see this game through and and try to <laughs> have fun with it. But 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 I think the fun of it disappears uh, fairly quickly. Well, but only for a couple people who realize what the true nature of the game is before Clinton dies. Yeah. Which is uh, Raquel Welch's character, Alice, and come to find out, uh, Tom. It's Raquel Welch who is the shoplifter and then and then the, yeah. whoever the mystery person is in that scenario who has the has another card right or right right there, there's the whole like back and forth between her and an unseen person who we learn the identity of can we just say that we're spoiling at this point at this point yeah, to, yeah. Like, we're, in, we're in spoiler mood about at this point yeah so we we find out that it's tom she's talking to and uh he uh she has the homosexual card that belongs to him so I think they are the only two who like realize the full extent of what Clinton has done before he dies. So like I think for everyone else it is reasonable to assume that they were thinking this was just a fun game and they hadn't put together that these secrets were real yet. Regardless, I think that observation about how Clinton doesn't like any of these people expressly extends to all of the rest of the cast. I don't think any of these people like each other. I don't think the married couples like Mm -hmm. each other. I don't think the lovers like each other. I don't think the people who are cheating on each other uh, like each other. I think there's just a pretty deep well of like just antipathy and maybe even a misanthropy going through all of this. And I, I just really wonder if... As kind of uh, veterans in the in Hollywood circles, like Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim, we're just kind of expressing what it feels like to be surrounded by people who smile and pretend to like you and would stab you in the back. You know, who oh, part yeah. part of their job is pretending that uh, you're their best friend when they need you and expressing things they don't feel. And there's just there's an awful lot of oh, we're all friends here kind of camaraderie that just never feels real. And just moment after moment after moment, we see them like betraying each other, using each other or just sometimes not showing each other any concern. The whole thing at the end where Lee says that she wants to, you know, make a clean end of it and then goes off to her cabin and nobody really tries to stop her. They kind of say, oh, should we maybe not let her do that? And then Tom goes and checks her door, checks the door and comes back. He's like, oh, she's locked in. And then they're done. You know, they they don't try to break down the door. They don't try to, like, talk her out of it. And there are reasons for for Tom behaving that way. But for everybody else, it's like, your friend basically just said she was going to commit suicide. And your response is, well, you know, she put a barrier between her and us. So there's probably not really anything we can do. Hey, what's what's for dinner? What uh, has anybody come up with a replacement for the ice pick yet so we can have cocktails? Like it's just, <laughs> the, the lack of concern is incredible. Well, once people start dying, yeah. no one really cares that much. Well, yeah. they continue the cruise after after Clinton leaves. Like they, they continue the rest of their vacation. Like it, <laughs> like it seems like a couple days have passed after that when before they go on their last night and or their last night out ashore and philip stays behind and that's where sort of he and tom have their their big final confrontation but to your point tasha like it is not lost on me that this was written less than five years out from sondheim's company which has a a very kind of similar uh acerbic do any of these friends actually like each other vibe going on and like i'm not like a Sondheim expert by any means, but I know enough that I could just hear him all over this yes. film well, in the, in the all dialogue. The references, just like yeah. there's a references to like Garbo and Olivia de Havilland. 
<laughs> doing all this other stuff. Well, and- even something like the wordplay of like everyone putting their cards on the table, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like you know, like literalizing it. Like there's just like these like cheeky, lightly misanthropic moments, just like in a just a, a rhythm to the the speech and the dialogue that also feels very very much Sondheim. And maybe not to maybe we're seeing Sondheim. There's no Sondheim, but the way like the the flashbacks are integrated almost kind of feel like you hear when you hear like a little bit of a musical theme from a different Mm -hmm. or a different part of of a a musical later in it, and to recall it and things like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think this movie likes anybody. I don't don't (laughs) think this movie likes anybody in the film, and and maybe not humanity itself. I mean, and I think there's there's moments in it that kind of intentionally play with your expectations because toward the end tom and philip basically turn into our sleuths right and then it's revealed that tom is a murderer and then in the back of your mind you have to remember that philip despite being played by the charming james mason there's he's he's the young he's probably a child molester almost certainly a child molester although we never get the details a little child molester uh uh, you know, which might be an in joke about him being the star of Lolita in some ways, but it's mm-hmm. also kind of like, uh, well, but, but, but he's directing kids. He's maybe, yeah, this, maybe the way we're introduced to him. kids of that commercial. Yeah. I don't, maybe, maybe you know, something. Uh, I don't know that the the thing where the little kid uh, comes and sits on his lap in the middle of the uh, shoot and just seems to see nothing unusual about that. Like there, there was something a little ick oh my there. God. Well, there's also the fact that he, uh, Philip, admits to turning on the propellers to try to kill Clinton. He's got something there to hide. Yeah, he's definitely got something to hide. But like I said this in in our Slack last night, like I am very confused about that aspect of his character because no, everyone seems to be pretty chill about it. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, they all have secrets on the table of varying degrees of embarrassing but that one seems brushed off in a way that i found unusual i guess yeah being an ex-con or a shoplifter is is much different from being a child molester think about how many people have signed the uh roman polanski did nothing wrong and should be allowed back into the states Mm. uh document Mm. there's an aspect of that there's an aspect of we really don't hear the details of his crimes so they don't have to be confronted with it too much But there's also a degree to which I think these people, for the most part, just don't care that much about each other. Like, Mm -hmm. child molester has become kind of de facto almost the worst thing you can call somebody, which is why so many people are like weaponizing it politically right now. Just like where what used to be the the insult that Nazi was, where everybody just went directly to that on the Internet. Now it's groomer. And groomer is just like the, the worst possible thing you can be. So everybody's calling each other groomer constantly. But I think in this set, in this era, it's not that child molestation was a good thing, but other people's sexual peccadilloes were just much less interesting, I think, much less of a concern for other people. And these people are all very self-absorbed. Like, I think if there was you know, graphic child pornography in the mix, they would be horrified. But as it is, they have a card that's never actually discussed. And they're all way, way, way more caught up in their own, uh, their own traumas and their own guilt and their own secrets being exposed. I do think that there's a, a, a reason that the film itself doesn't highlight what he did, because it would be unbalancing in terms mm-hmm. of the kind of comic elements and the terms of the mystery elements. If we were thinking about a sexually abused child, an awful lot of what I would think of as the fun of this movie would get lost in in that detail. It is sort of odd, I guess, that yeah. they, they chose child molester as his crime as opposed to, you know, something less, something less barbed, something, something less. That, something that starts with the letter L. <laughs> well, it, not starting with the letter L is uh, an important clue and kind of a fun letter reel, R. I think. It is. I, I, I do like that part of it. Yeah, you know, we should talk about also just kind of the film's approach to sexuality in general. You know, there's there's sort of the it's it's attitude toward Christine's uh, free use of the staff. It has it has fun with that. It also feels a little condemnatory. There is also the matter of uh, Tom's having been a homosexual. I guess is the way you way you put it. I mean, yeah. uh, Sondheim was gay. Tony Perkins was gay. Tony Perkins though was he married a woman the same year as this after Ungo. 
going undergoing some kind of quote unquote conversion therapy. There's that interesting little diversion to the gay bar in France as well. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I went down a little bit of a, a wiki wormhole of, of just sort of like with the timing of this and Tony Perkins's experience, I guess, uh, as a as a closeted gay man in, in Hollywood. And the timing there does in- seem very notable. And to bring this back to what we were just talking about and, and put it in the context of everyone's secrets, during that cards on the table scene, you know, when Tom admits that the homosexual card was about him, you know, he frames it as it was a dalliance, it was in the past. And mm-hmm. all of these secrets are framed as being like, in the past, they're not about who we are now. And with Tom in particular, he seems to be saying, I am no longer a homosexual, <laughs> you know, and combined with Tony Perkins's having gone through conversion therapy and being married to a woman the same year, it, it's hard not to draw those connections very strongly, even if they weren't intentional. At the same time, Lee's original uh, card, not the card that she held, but the card that was intended for her, was alcoholic. And we watch her mm-hmm. over the course of the the film go from, I'm not drinking, it's ginger ale, to just perpetually eyeing mm-hmm. the bar and asking for a drink like every few yeah. minutes in a, a very uncomfortable way. And I, I feel like there's sort of meant to be a, a parallel, a hint there, that even if everybody mm-hmm. wants to think of these things as Secrets in their past, you know, they're still weighing on them. There's still things that they have to deal with. There's still things that that may well be part of them. Including the little child molester, I Except guess. for Alice, who uh, <laughs> just ch- tried to shoplift a fur coat just the once and never again. Well, and I did like Christine's admission, too, of being an informer, which I guess we should note that Christine is modeled on Sue Menger's, which I don't think she had anything like that in her past, at least nothing that I could find that would seem in- incredibly pointed if, if that were the, were the case. But uh, as, I, as I was saying, I did really like her admission and sort of of what she did and how she atoned for it. She's like, I've gotten some of those people jobs. Some of them still don't speak to me and some of them do, you know, and hers at least does seem to be very firmly in the past, even if it is like, it still clings to her, I guess, reputation wise. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of an odd moment, uh, unusual moment within the film of someone feeling bad about something and (laughs) seem to try try to rectify (laughs) their behavior. I guess, you know, in some ways, I think Christine may be the most sympathetic character, but I'm sure there's something horrible she did that I'm just forgetting (laughs) as well. I mean, she's kind of annoying. Like, or I think she she's like kind of meant to be kind right. annoying. Like Lee is certainly annoyed by her, and she's, she's just very like provocative. I mean, she gets yeah. a lot of the a lot of the nastiest one liners for our Christines. I mean, it's a really entertaining performance for sure. And she gets to play hysteria uh, after the propeller incident. Oh my god, what does she say about like uh, about <laughs> needing lesbians or something like? What's the line? Yeah, I, I that that whole riff of hers when she was just like losing it after yeah. being pulled back on board. I would that actually I I, I will uh, point that out as a moment that did kind of confuse me just because it felt like it should mean something and I don't think it did unless I'm missing something. I think it was yeah, just she was babbling. hysterical after a near death experience. She said the line is "Give me a glass of water and a couple of lesbians." <laughs> I don't, why, I don't know why she would say that, but it's an amazing line. I don't know what it means, but it's it's incredible. Is that not uh, what you is, reach for whenever you have a bad experience, it, Scott? This is before she she wants a, a tab because her they could shoot uh, Lords of Arabia in her mouth or something. That was like a great that. line. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, so good. We, yeah. we 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 had touched on the Sondheimness of it all and how you know we can't tell exactly what Sondheim wrote, what he contributed, but that line uh, about shooting Lawrence of Arabia in her mouth, like that feels very Sondheim in terms of the the reference and in terms of the not necessarily sounding like something somebody would casually say, but having that just kind of patina of cleverness that tells you that this is like a smart person who knows a lot about a specific industry. And I like I look at all of these characters and how they interact and I just I see so much of Sondheim's plays in again their misanthropy, their tension with each other, their dislike for each other, their 
cheating on each other, a, a big thing in Sondheim stories. And maybe just above all, each of them caring most about themselves. And that's certainly something we see. There, there's a lot more attention paid to Christine after that experience than there is to Lee, you know, threatening to commit suicide and going away. But I guess by that time, they're all kind of exhausted with each other. And all of it, of course, leads up to a deliciously cynical conclusion, too, which is like, okay, everyone's cards are on the table now. I know what this. I know what the scheme is involving Lee. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, in, in the five million dollars, so let's make a movie. It, and I'd like, let's make a movie. It's just like that's perfect. That's Hollywood. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I can see a movie like The Player being indebted to this type, uh, this film too, mm. in a way, in that sense of just like of, of being, uh, you know, this acidic uh, comedy set among Hollywood types where everything kind of eventually becomes you know uh, grist for the movie making mill you know including people dying mm, that just may be a thing that we read differently i didn't necessarily think that philip was literally going to make a movie i saw that all as a a veiled i mean he's he's blackmailing tom for the yeah. money that tom is going to get and yeah. I, I didn't necessarily think that his a movie was coming out of it though. his career his yeah. career's in the in the in the pit see this is his chance to a to get financing for a for a movie this is the i think i i took it absolutely face value hmm. yeah, yeah I, I, I did as well because of sort of his final turn of the knife with tom telling him that he can't write it but he can do rewrites oh that was <laughs> you know? so good oh my god <laughs> which, oh. which that detail i guess sold me on it actually being something that Philip planned on doing combined with, as Scott says, like us seeing him struggling career wise and us hearing throughout the film, sort of his, him ruining that. I mean, the, the cruelty in this film is so entertaining, you know, just like, just so yeah. casual. I mean, there's a whole, there's a like, like exchange when like, when one of them is like, I think it's Christine who, who's uh, doesn't want to get up because she needs to like, you know, tan her stomach for, 20 minutes, minutes or something and and, and, and then <laughs> she, the, the line back at her that alice says is something like that's because to make up for the time make up for the 25 back. on your back yeah yeah it's like <laughs> man like that was just that was a straight was catching the straight yeah. was, I mean, oh man i love it it's great there's also that moment where like after christine's near-death experience where clinton is speechifying about how much his ass loves islands which is, I, I thought that was a much more modern usage of, of ass. And when he says, you know, my, yeah. my ass loves little islands, I thought that was kind of amazing. There's Dropping, also a point where Tom mentions vibes, which I was, I was like, ooh, I, I guess people said vibes in the 70s. I think of vibes is a very 70s thing. When Clinton is in the, the launch and he's being lowered down and he's giving that speech and he passes by Christine and she holds up the world's biggest sandwich and says that she's getting over her her trauma and she's eating solid food <laughs> and he just kind of seamlessly uh starts talking about how much he hates to be interrupted when he's giving a speech yeah that's a really nice little bit of uh casual cruelty too but clinton clinton is a cruel man like the whole sequence where he's in the the confessional and he's actively angry. Every time somebody new finds him, uh, he's like, oh, shut up and go away. You know, so the next person can maybe he can get it right the way he has it in his head the next time around. Like he doesn't even give any of them a moment to enjoy having solved the mystery. He kind of hates them all for solving it. And he hates them all for solving it, even though the puzzle isn't working out quite the way he wants. Like his nastiness to them over it is, again, pretty delicious. I just love James Coburn. <laughs> you know, what, what, a, what, a, what a unique presence. I can't really think yeah. of another actor who has that particular mix uh, and the, who could play like, you know, a hardened action star, but also like a tongue in cheek action star thinking of the Flint movies. And then whatever this is, just like, like a cruel, clever, I don't know. Charismatic. What yeah. Charismatic, but also awful. All person. the C's. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is exceptionally well cast. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. it, you know, you, I don't, uh, I mean, it's not like I can sit here and and brainstorm a bunch of contemporary actors at the time that might have filled in those roles any better but like everyone just works i mean diane cannon is in the is in the role that she should be in obviously raquel welch is playing a, a very raquel welch type and and uh james mason who you know gets to be the the gentleman sounding guy who gets to the gentleman sounding child molester, little child molester <laughs> who, who gets to solve solve the big the big mystery at the end and it's just it, everything you know in Coburn is Coburn it's just it, it, everything hits really well and and the, the cast is a big reason for that in a way you know if, if I'm like gonna poke a 
hole in the film at all. It's that I wish, I almost wonder if the direction had been a little bit more robust, Mm. it would have been even better. I mean, I, I, you know, it feels like that was like the area where it's just kind of, you know, a little bit murky, a little on, you know, maybe, maybe I just didn't see the, the best possible, you know, transfer of it or something, but, but it didn't, it did not seem, I mean, Herbert Ross, you know, is not going to put too much spin on the ball stylistically, mm-hmm. but it was not like, it, it felt it like more of a serviceable yeah. directing yeah. job than anything, than anything that was really up to the level of the script and the acting. I felt that a, a little bit during the monastery scene or sequence, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, like that's just, it's such a striking environment and it's not not striking on, on screen, but it feels like it maybe didn't do as much as he could have, or it's not, he didn't present it as interestingly as it could have been, particularly because that is the big turning point of, of the movie. And it just kind of, it feels maybe a little undercooked when it arrives. But again, like you said, Scott, it's a, a minor hole to poke in this, I think. I mean, I, and I've seen Agatha Christie adaptations that are just like, I mean, this it, this looks like Bertolucci compared to some of the stuff, I, some of those other yeah. whodunits you see where it's just like there's been no investment at all in the style of the film and, and, and the structure or anything to make it kind of you know, cinematic and exciting. And at least there's a little bit of that here. It just, it just, you know, I, you watch this film otherwise with that script and the famous people who were behind it and with these stars. And you think like, why did it take so long for this film to kind of get the rep that it enjoys now? And, you know, and it wasn't a hit. It was like, you know, the reviews are pretty mixed. It seems like, and it's just like th- this deserved a little bit more respect and uh, more love than it seemed to get. And uh, maybe that was the reason. I don't know. It wasn't a hit at a time when, you know, whodunits were, you know, I mean, this is, this was, uh, or mystery films in general, like, you know, I think Murder on the Orient Express is the next year, also featuring Anthony Perkins and, and then Sleuth was the solution. previous year. Yeah. And it was, and it's a funny thing. I, I, in researching this, I found out that Sleuth was inspired by Anthony Schaefer being friends with Sondheim and, and, and noticing his love of games and twists and mysteries. Oh, so, wow. you know, it, it also comes out of that. Wow. But, you know, Ross direct, would direct 7% Solution in a couple of, couple of years. So it was a mystery rich time. I wonder, you know, it's kind of, it came out the same day as Shaft in Africa in 1973. So maybe everyone <laughs> went to see Shaft in Africa instead. <laughs> Uh, one interesting thing that came up in Ben Ben Mankiewicz's introduction of the film on TCM is is that you know this is basically this movie is basically a deconstruction of a whodunit genre that really had <laughs> didn't exist yet in mm. popular movies because Murder on the Orient Express hadn't what wouldn't even do for another year, so maybe that explains some of it. Yeah, I guess uh, it would be more inspired by the fiction as well you see you also see a, a we should mention that ken adam who is best known for his work on james bond films uh did the production design and it's just littered with with games but also like paperbacks and you can look and see there's agatha christie novels and things like that like this this film tells you what it is right there in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the production design i was not aware of the connection between i i hadn't thought about sondheim and, and anthony schaefer having a connection and I was looking at Sleuth to date as, you know, maybe not early enough to have had an effect on this movie, but I forgot that it was based on a play. And that makes me think all the more that the the theory, I mean, it, is, it reminded me so much of Sleuth in a way in terms of structure. It's just a lot more complicated and, you know, Sondheimy with a whole lot of conflicting voices. But I really wonder if Clinton is just kind of meant to be sort of one of the Sleuth characters interrupted and that that's the sort of the the way in which this is an answer a direct answer to sleuth is setting up this uh incredibly elaborate mousetrap if you will and then springing it halfway through and and breaking the structure that kind of subversion does also seem very sondheim and knowing that he and schaefer were friends and that he could have been looking back to the play rather than at the movie i really definitely think that there's a, a connection there yeah, that's that's interesting, and, and Sleuth is mean like this too. Mm-hmm. Right? I think they're both similarly misanthropic, and I just wonder is 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 misanthropy kind of endemic to the whodunit 
genre in some ways, you know, because it certainly, if nothing else, it, it, it requires you to enter a world where anybody, you know, anybody could be a murderer and everyone's a suspect. And it, it is sort of a, a dark way of looking at the world, even if only one person turns out to be the actual killer. Well, and it naturally pits people against each other, too. Mm-hmm. And the more tension there is there, the more question of whether you're going to have a second or third or fourth murder, which is how some of those mysteries are constructed. So, I mean, I don't think it's entirely necessary, but I think it's a great tool for them. I think it's another subversion to it, too. We kind of talked about it before, but it's like there are no good guys in this. There is no like heroic detective coming in. The the people who saw the murder pretty awful as well. Although there are an awful lot of murder mysteries, especially serial uh, television murder mysteries, where the sleuth is also kind of a noted misanthrope. I mean, you can have kindly notable misanthropes like Columbo or, you know, sharp, nasty, uh, notable misanthropes like House. But in anything that is kind of a mystery of the week structure, whether it's a medical mystery, a murder mystery, or, or com- some completely different kind of mystery, there are still a lot of, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of range between your Miss Marples and your your monks. Yeah, you basically, I guess, if you're if you're a TV detective, whether you're you know if you're if you're you know a murder she wrote or a clone or whatever, you're, you're going to just meet a murderer every week, and it's going to color your view of humanity a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't always meet a murderer. We met uh, on this show, but we did this week. We're going to wind that down for now. We would love to hear your thoughts on this discussion um, and, you know, murderers and, and misanthropy and, and, and all that. Uh, and anything else in the world of film, you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us or any other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. time for feedback. Before we get to it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. Their most recent episode, as we record this, is on Avatar, The Way of Water, which I'm looking forward to listening to. I was kind of waiting until I wrote my own review. Uh, it's a film we consider covering here. We are doing a bonus episode on it. Uh, Adam and Josh also had their annual wrap party in New York on January 14th, and there's and that's always tremendous fun. When it's here in Chicago, I'm sure it'll also be fun in New York. Uh, tickets are now on sale at filmspotting.com. Net. First up, we got a letter from our regular listener, Edwin, in North Carolina that's sure to provoke some conversation. Tasha, can you read that one? Yes, of course. Terrence Malick is one of my favorite filmmakers, but I've never understood the love for Badlands. Yes, the score and the scenery are excellent, but the performances and the writing, not so much. I also believe there's a brilliant 90-minute film hiding in the three-hour slog known as A Hidden Life. Cutting the extra hour of neighbors shouting at our protagonists sans subtitles would be a good start. Do you have favorite filmmakers who have one or two features that you can't stand? Not, not, not those Badlands. two. <laughs> no, no, or, or, or His Life. I like yeah. them. I think both those movies quite a bit. I love Edwin, but I, I do not like his cut of A Hidden Life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, Hidden Life. Uh, I actually, you know, it is long and kind of punishing long in some ways, but I also feel like it's that it kind of feels like it has to be in, in, in some ways. And I can kind of see if you really fell in love with Days of Heaven, Thin Red Line, Malik, you know, Badlands is, you know, it's, it, it's you know, relatively speaking, a conventional film. So maybe you're 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 not finding as much of the of the dreamy qualities uh, there. But I do like both those films. I mean, I, I guess if I were to answer, I mean, one answer one. I have several answers for this question, but one of them would probably be Song to Song, uh, which is the Malik film that that maybe I should go back and watch it again. But but, but no one likes that movie. <laughs> but that's that's the one that just really lost me. And and I've, I've I'm someone who found, you know, things to like about uh, Night of Cups and uh, To the Wonder, uh, which are all similarly. You know, not as as loved as other uh, Malik films. I got I got other contenders for the answer to this question, but I'll I'll let others take take you know. Take Before we move off Malik, I mean, I it's some, some perhaps some other time we can talk about uh, what you love about Knight of Cups because that movie for me. Oh, not love, not love, but but I find things to like about it. <laughs> that <laughs> that movie for me just plays like somebody making fun of Malik at length. It it plays like a parody of a Malik movie, and. I, I don't know that I want the 90-minute version of uh, Hidden Life, but I could see trimming that movie down. It's, it is very punishing. It's so beautiful, but it's so grueling and so exhausting. And I'm not sure that the themes of the movie necessarily require that, that level of repetition in terms of some of the things that he does. 
But uh, now Badlands, I'll go to bat for. I do like those performances. I, I do like that writing. I really love that couple together and, and how they spark off each other. Yeah, which performances are not amazing in Badlands? Oh, <laughs> uh, this is reminding me. This whole this this question, God God, God bless it, uh, is reminding me a little bit of of uh, of one of those Twitter prompts you don't want to see. <laughs> this is like this is like people like listing a bunch of movies you love that they think stink uh, by filmmakers that you love. So, but we'll keep going. Well, we'll we'll keep going by talking about some movies that we don't love that other people do uh, that we think stink. I'll start. I I know that this one is kind of a controversy for uh, for some people who are going to leap up to defend it, but I just about couldn't make it through the Coen Brothers' The Lady Killers. I think that that movie is just the comedy is entirely disjointed. I I don't think that it's a good remake. I don't think that it's a good Coen Brothers movie. I don't think that it's a good crime thriller. I don't think that it's a good comedy. And I I really don't think that Tom Hanks has any part in the middle of it. I will go to bat for (laughs) so... It's his best performance, in my opinion. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course you think that, Scott. (laughs) It's it's, it's the Coen's worst film, though, I will say. It's it's their worst film, but I I love Tom Hanks in it. We've we've been getting along so well for so long, Scott. Why you got to do this to me? Why why you got to be so very, very wrong i i've written a bunch about the coen brothers and like the the continuum of of work that they do from like these really serious like bloody thrillers to these kind of like puffy light slight comedies like burn after reading but i just don't want the lady killers anywhere on that continuum i have no desire to ever rewatch it again i i really disliked that movie it's all right tom hanks best movie apparently (laughs) No, I, I can't. I can't go to bat for it too much. It's my, my second least favorite Coen Brothers movie. I do like Hanks, actually, though. I do like. I like Emery P. Hall. What's at the, the bottom, Keith? What's at yeah, the bottom? Yeah, what's the bottom? Intolerable uh, cruelty. It, it, intolerable cruelty. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, it's, which are, I don't hate. The, I don't hate any ones. of them. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had a really hard time with this question because. And this is kind of related to what you said before, Keith. Like, if I like a filmmaker, I'm probably not going to hate their movie like i'm probably gonna find something to to like in it and the other thing is like i personally just am not a completist like if i hear that a movie isn't good i'm probably not going to seek it out just for completism's sake basically so like there are directors i like who you know i haven't seen all of their films so i feel like i can't you know definitively say that this is like their worst work but also the question is specifically like films we can't stand. And I like to like, for example, Sofia Coppola, I like all of her films to, to some extent or the, the other. If I want to be like controversial, I don't like Lost in Translation as much as everyone else seems Whoa, to. Like, it's, it. like, it's, it's like it's like low on my list of, of, of her films, but Go I don't off, hate Genevieve. it. I, 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 but I don't hate it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and talk about how Lost in Translation is terrible. So... I kind of went in a different, uh, I went a little off script here, but I was thinking about like, who is a director that I'm always curious what they're going to do. And, uh, you know, they may not always, I may not always love what they do. But when was the time that like, they really let me down? Like, I, I really hate like really did hate what they did. And I came up with the Danny Boyle movie yesterday from 2019 oh my god uh, is that a, oh my god you agree or oh my god no, oh my you, god you, i agree though i think he's done a lot of really bad <laughs> yeah exactly exactly like like he that one is like, really 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 bad and it's written by richard curtis who is another filmmaker who like has like real highs and lows for me but they're both i both think of them sort of in this tier of filmmaker like when they're good i vibe with them so well and when they're bad i really really don't like it and yesterday is just like an amalgam of both of them at their work worst and i i really truly hate that movie especially because it stars haimish patel who is amazing and he's saddled with this really terrible schmaltzy uh movie that ends in one of the most infuriating ways i've ever seen so um uh, rather than you know try and pick apart some things i don't love that much about lost in translation i think i'm just gonna rail against yesterday (laughs) for this question (laughs) I'll keep mine pretty simple, which is that I did. I I, I went ahead and and uh, I did a piece for for Vulture where I ranked every Francis Ford Coppola movie, and and I saw everything that I hadn't seen before, and basically came to the conclusion that you could, in mounted defense of every single film he ever directed, except one, and that Ooh. film was Jack. 
Oh, uh, I thought about Jack, and I was like, Scott's gonna want to do Jack. <laughs> hate Jack. Jack is. I. You would not know it's him. Oh, you kind of. You could dig. You could. You could kind of find him there somewhere. But I don't know. Like, like he. There were times. There were f- films of his that seem that were a little more mercenary than others, and more commercial. Like you know, him trying to kind of find his way back into the into the hollywood fold uh, that are still fascinating in, in his and oftentimes quite good but jack is the one that just is like i can't i can't with that movie that is just, there's nothing good about that about that film i can't with that movie so hard that i never saw it so yeah no it's 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 not it's just not even worth seeing like it's that it's that bad so there, that's all I'll, I'll just go with that but i mean you know a lot of filmmakers have their disappointments but that that one kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because it doesn't feel personal in a way that is that is so defining of him i mean you could talk about a film like de palma's redacted as being you know a pretty serious misfire but that's that is not an impersonal film it's a very angry film it's just it's just very clumsy anyway that's it this is probably one that actually is a really personal film and also stars robin williams but i i, I saw hook once and what was enough mm-hmm. maybe one day i'll go check it out <gasps> again but uh i yeah. hope i hope roxanne is not listening this deep into the podcast her old guest <laughs> oh, yeah. roxanne yeah. she is a uh she's part of the a generation that uh fell in love with the film hook i and, think it is uh, a generational thing too yeah, hey, yeah i am would... i am part of that generation and i do not claim hook but but like this is another sort of problem i had thinking of something for this question is because like I'm not going to revisit Hook, you know, so I'm like relying on memories that are 30 years old at this point. And I just like, don't feel comfortable, I guess, uh, trashing a film that I haven't watched as an adult. Yeah, that's fair. Can I can I throw yeah. out one more that might be uh, like, I don't know, very controversial or, you know, mark me in some way? <laughs> I could, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm bracing myself. I, I, oh, man. Probably not. I could not stand Billy Wilder's Irma LaDouche. Deuce? Yeah. I didn't love it. I don't actually remember it all that well. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, 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 but I, I don't remember, you know, Billy Wilder films I like a lot more than that. I don't think you're going to gonna upset too many he didn't bat a thousand i I mean he he did pretty well though there's still a lot of billy wilder films that i i haven't seen and in part it's because uh at some point i got into the weeds and once you get past like the the unimpeachable classics you start to get into movies that just seem a little more half-baked like a little a little less complete but i always thought of uh irma laduce as a as one of the the classics like one of the highly respected ones and i just found it bitter and and sexist and cynical and creepy and controlling in a way that kind of takes a lot of his sort of funnier misanthropy and just kind of turns it into misogyny in a a way that's a lot more single-minded and unsatisfying and, and weird it's like you know billy billy wilder's whole brand was just this kind of cynical darkness and the the different ways that people use and, and misuse each other in interesting and and sometimes like very sad and, and sometimes very beautiful ways. But this was the one where it just kind of came together for me in a, a very specifically bad and ugly kind of way uh, with with one person just kind of setting out to control and, and deceive uh, another person that but supposedly because he cares for her. I, I just uh, it landed real bad for me. Did you ever see Kiss Me Stupid? That's the one that, that people really hate. I did. Um, I, I think I think I think it's I think it's interesting though. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. during during about the same time period, and I I found it not great, but not memorable. Like it didn't it didn't like hack me off in the same way. It didn't set my hackles it's up. Just, it's really mean. Is is, is I, gave four, I, I, gave, I, I gave it four stars in the in the dissolve. I, I, yeah. I, I'm a fan. He's good. There's a, there's a, if you're living in Chicago, they're doing a, a big old uh, mat, a retrospective mat, matinee of his work uh, starting at the be, uh, beginning of the year. So, uh, ooh, that could be I'm fun. Excited about that. Maybe. Yeah, I mean the apartments. The apartment kicks it off. So, something to think about. Could be a, a good time to catch up on the ones that I haven't seen. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and their their sort of Twitter prompts, which we'll probably want more <laughs> of now that Twitter is uh, it's gone now, right? But, you know, I, I, I safely predict. Two weeks into the future. It's, it depends it's on how you feel uh, about Elon Musk. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, feel- uh, Scott Tobias just got canceled off this podcast for saying <laughs> that. He won't be appearing for the rest of the podcast. Well, if you feel so inclined, write us and we might feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Mm-hmm.
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll visit a different port of call for another game of mystery and murder courtesy of Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Look for that episode Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop, assuming we're still there. Uh, Until next week, beware of cruise invitations from people who might hate you.